Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. As I mentioned earlier, my daughter, she is four now, and uh, she's got that stage where she's starting to really ask my wife and I a lot of tough questions. For example, she wants to know why Amber and I are married. We say, well, you know, it's because we love each other, right? So she wants to know why she can't marry her brother. She loves him. <laughs> and I say, look, I know we're from Tennessee, but we, we can't do all that. No, no. She also started recently asking me about death. It all started when we drove by a cemetery one day, and she wanted to know what all those flowers were doing out there. And look, I'm kind of a straight shooter. I just I told her, I said, look, that's the place we bury people's bodies when they die. Said, really? She wanted to know all about that. Well, why do people die? Will she die? When will she die? She didn't want to die. She didn't want me or her mama to die. Then she wants to know about heaven. What, what is heaven? Where is heaven? Will she go to heaven? These are great gospel conversations. I'm, I'm really, like, excited to see God's, like, helping her to think about this stuff. But it's kind of delicate to explain to a four-year-old that she's going to die one day, but hopefully not too soon. But it's actually a good thing, but only if you trust in Jesus. And if you don't, well, that's not good at all. Some tough questions, right? And it's part of having kids. That's, that's the way it works. And, but I love it. I do because she's, she's learning. And you know what? I'm still learning, too. Maybe like you, I'm still asking some tough questions, especially when it comes to God and, and life. I still have some things to figure out. And the cool thing is that we see in the Bible, we see God's desire to help us grow in our understanding of him. Many of the toughest questions about life are answered right here in the Word of God. The Bible, it's almost as if it anticipates our questions and our wrestling with these things. And God, he wants us to know him. So we're going to see today as we continue our study through the book of Romans that that's true. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote in a particular style. And if we want to understand this letter, we need to understand the style. The Bible's filled with different genres. So just as we would read a newspaper and a book of poetry differently, we have to read the different parts of the Bible differently as well. Paul wrote Romans as a letter or as what we call an epistle. It's what we established in week one. But Paul also wrote this letter as an argument. Paul is making a case for the gospel, and we see this bear out as he anticipates our objections, and he asks these rhetorical questions. Paul carefully lays out his argument, and as he does, he keeps our concerns in mind. And we're going to see that today in our passage in these eight verses, Paul pauses for a few verses to deal with some important questions and objections to his message thus far. So let's look at that now in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Romans 3, 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? 
But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Yes, that is thunder, and this is the word of the Lord, okay? (laughs) You remember that, all right? Thank you, God. Uh, (laughs) Let's remember that uh, in these first three chapters we've been in, Paul is presenting the gospel by starting with the bad news. He's explaining why all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. Remember we said before we can fully appreciate the good news of the gospel, we must fully understand the bad news. So in chapter 1, he demonstrated how the Gentile people, that was anyone in the world who was not a Jew, had suppressed the truth about God and sinned against him. Then in chapter 2, he really went after his fellow Jews. He explained how even though they claimed to be moral people and religious people, those things were not enough to save them. Even though they had the Old Testament and the law and they were circumcised, they were still under God's judgment because they too had sinned against him. Now, all this talk about judgment was no doubt bringing up some questions. I think if we're honest, we probably have some questions about God's judgment too. But we live in a time and culture today where the concept of judgment and and sin and punishment, these things are not very popular. Those who do believe in God today tend to think of him as loving and accepting of everyone and everything. So when we hear this talk about us deserving to die and God judging all people for their actions and God's wrath and anger, this really flies in the face of a lot of what we believe and think about God. And this was also difficult for Paul's first century readers, too. They had some questions about all this judgment talk. So Paul takes a moment here in these verses to answer two tough questions about God. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage verse by verse, and we'll look at those two questions in turn. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Remember, Paul is kind of arguing with himself here. He just finished pointing the finger at the Jewish people as being hypocritical and being under God's judgment. So here's the logical question that comes next. What was the point of being Jewish? I mean, Paul, I thought we were the people of God. Was that for nothing? And what about the Ten Commandments? And what about circumcision? Please tell me that was not pointless. Should we just throw out the Old Testament? You know, some Christians are ready to do that. Some Christians think, well, that Old Testament stuff, and it really applied to us today. Let's just skip over that. But notice what Paul says. What advantage is there to being a Jew? He says there's much in every way. In other words, there's a ton of advantage here for being from the nation of Israel. For starters, he says this is the big one. The Jews had the oracles of God. This is the the word of God, the very promises of God given to Abraham and his descendants. If you were a Jew in the first century, you were incredibly blessed to know God's word and to have this rich heritage. What What a gift, what a privilege that was. So even though Paul has established that the Jewish people were sinful and they were under God's judgment, he wants to make clear that they have benefited from a special relationship with God that no one else had. 
the Old Testament, the, the promises of God, all those great stories and truths, they're still true. We still need to read the Old Testament. But the rhetorical questions continue. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's what they're thinking next. Paul, you, you said Jewish people are, are really messed, they really messed up. They, they sinned against God. They were unfaithful. They didn't keep their part of the agreement. Does that cancel out what God promised in his word? Here's how he responds. <clears throat> he says, by no means. This is a strong response. It's an emphatic rejection. If you have the KJV, it translates that. God forbid. It means no way. Just because the nation of Israel was unfaithful does not mean that God will be unfaithful. In fact, he says that even if every single person on the planet is a liar, God will remain true. And Paul bolsters his point with an Old Testament reference. He quotes Psalm 51.4. This is a psalm written by David after he sinned and really messed up with the whole Bathsheba situation. And in this verse, David tells God that he is justified and blameless in his judgment. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, David messed up about as bad as you can mess up. And he's been punished for it. He's been brought to repentance. And in the end, he's able to say to God, God, you were right. You were right in your judgment, even when you judge me for my sin. So let's step back now and see what these four verses are really all about. What is the first tough question that Paul is answering here about God? Here it is. Number one, is God's judgment faithful? This is the question the Jewish people were wrestling with. They were thinking about all the promises God had made to them. For example, in, in Leviticus 26, God promised that they would be his people and he would be their God. In Psalm 121, he promised to protect them from harm. In 1 Chronicles 16, 34, he promised his steadfast love would endure forever. <clears throat> the Jewish people knew these verses. They memorized them. They, they treasured them. And they thought, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then man, God lied to us. God's not keeping up his end of the deal here. If God is going to judge us, his special people, then he's not being faithful. But here's what Paul reminds them. He quotes Psalm 51 to show them that God is not only faithful when he keeps his promise to bless, he's also faithful when he keeps his promise to judge. See, Jewish people knew about those promises too, the, the negative ones. They knew, for example, in Psalm 1 that God promised to drive the wicked away like chaff in the wind. They knew Deuteronomy 28 where God promised to bring curses on his people if they broke his covenant. And they knew Amos 9 where God promised to destroy Israel with the sword for their idolatry. They knew this. So here's the deal. If God is going to be faithful, if he's going to be true, then he must keep all of his promises, even the ones that are not necessarily positive, even the ones that speak of his judgment. If God's going to be faithful, he has to keep his word, all of it, even the parts we don't like. And I think we struggle with this same question today, if we're honest. Is God faithful in his judgment? The fact that God punishes people for sin and sends people to hell, does that mean that God is breaking his promises? And I thought God loved the whole world. I thought he's a God of abundant mercy and forgiveness and grace. 
Here's the thing. We tend to only think of God's faithfulness in the good. When we have a baby or get married or get the job we wanted or the cancer goes into remission or we're spared in a car wreck, we think, praise God for his faithfulness. What about in the miscarriage or the divorce or the layoffs or the cancer coming back or the drunk driver who kills an innocent person? Is God still faithful then? Does God fail us in these moments? Does he forget about us, give up on us, betray us in his word? Look, we don't have all the answers for why God does what he does. There's a lot we just don't know, but there is one thing we can know for certain. No matter what life may bring, in good and in bad, God is always faithful. But here's the deal. What is God faithful to? He's not faithful to our demands, our wishes, our dreams. He's, not faith, he's faithful to his word and his promises. God has not promised us a long, healthy life or financial blessing or our dream job or fertility or perfect marriages or even protection from drunk drivers. What he has promised us is much, much greater than those things. And we'll come back to that at the end. But it's important that we understand right now that God is always faithful in everything he does. You know, I had a a boss in high school. I worked at a grocery store, and he would act differently depending on his mood. Anyone else's boss like that? You could tell when he was in a good mood, you could get away with a lot more. I didn't have to stress as much about getting all the shopping carts brought in immediately. I could take a snack and drink break or a few. But when he was in a bad mood, oh, we all knew we better work hard. We better be in our best behavior. I better get those carts in, rain or shine, because he could snap on us at any moment. Can you imagine if God were that way? That would be awful. It'd be terrifying. But God is not this way at all. God's faithfulness means he's consistent and unchanging in all of his ways. Listen to this in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God does not lie or change his mind or take back his promises. He does not have mood swings or bad days. God is true to his word, and this is a great thing. We want God to be true and and faithful to his word. The problem for us is that this also includes him being faithful in his judgment. And as we've seen, no one is exempt from that judgment. Not the nation of Israel, not you and me today. Because God is holy and righteous, he must be faithful to judge those who sin against him. So, yes, God is faithful in judgment. Let's keep going. Look at the next set of verses, which brings us to the next objection Paul deals with, verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? Remember, Paul is having this hypothetical argument. He's posing these questions. And Paul just said that God is faithful in his judgment. So here's the objection. And I know this is a lot of words. I had to read this many times to wrap my head around, but hang with me. He's saying, if my unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? In other words, if me sinning actually shows how holy and righteous God is in his judgment, then what's the problem? 
God shouldn't judge me for that. For him to judge me for making him look good actually makes him in the wrong, right? And Paul responds emphatically again. He says, by no means, no way. He even offers up that little apology at the end of verse 5. Do you see that? He says, I'm talking in a human way. He's explaining that what he's saying is, is from a limited human perspective. Because, of course, God is not unrighteous or wrong to inflict wrath on sinful people. First off, we know God cannot sin. God cannot do wrong. And secondly, we know that God is the judge of the whole world. How could he be the judge of the world if he himself were in the wrong? He couldn't. So this subjection is nonsense, but it gets even better. Look at verses 7 through 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. And now the objection is, hey, hang on a second here. Paul, you're telling us that God is faithful in his judgment, that God is glorified through all this by staying true to his word. Then why am I being punished as a sinner for helping God out? And you know what? Maybe I should just sin even more so God looks even better. Paul tells us people were actually saying these things about him. Paul was the grace guy. He was known for preaching this idea that our salvation is not based on what we do, but rather it's a free gift from God. So some people thought, well, hey, if my sin brings God's grace, then maybe I should just sin a little more. More sin equals more grace, right? And this actually brings good, and it makes God look good. Then look at me. I'm in the right. <laughs> this is a prime example of the extreme lengths we will go to to get out of trouble. Were you that way as a kid? I know I was. I was a master at talking my way out of a punishment, or at least trying to. You know, kids will say things like, so-and-so made me do it, or he did it first, or I didn't know it was wrong, or I didn't lie, I just forgot to tell you. It's my favorite. Or it was an accident, or it wasn't my fault. Let's imagine a child who gets in trouble at school for talking too much. That was me. <laughs> The school calls the parent, the parent sits down the child, and the parent says, look, no video games, no TV for a week until you learn to listen and stop talking so much in class. And imagine that that child responds and says, but mom, dad, when everyone finds out that you punish me for talking in school, they're going to see how fair and respectable you are as a parent. So what I did wasn't wrong. It actually makes you look like good parents. So you know what? I think I should go back to school and talk even more. How well do you think that argument would go over? I'm thinking that kid would probably still get in trouble, and I also think they should have him on the fast track to law school. <laughs> but that is exactly, that's what we do when it comes to God's judgment. We may not make these same arguments, but we're all little defense attorneys. We love to try and reason our way out of trouble and explain what we did really wasn't that bad, and we object to God's judgment. Here's the second question that's at the heart of this objection. It's the second tough question we need to deal with today concerning God. Number two, is God's judgment fair? And that's really the issue Paul's raising here. Is it, is it fair? Is it right for God to judge people? And I think many of us wrestle with the same question. I know our society today wrestles with it. We live in a time in which for a lot of people, ideas like right and wrong are up for debate. 
Morality is subjective, which means what's right for you is not necessarily what's right for me. We each like to think we're the judge of our own lives. And this means truth itself has been tossed out. We each determine our own truth. People even say things like, hey, live your truth. And truth is often based on feelings like happiness or what seems good in the moment or what feels right. Because right and wrong is subjective, because truth is up to each individual person, then, man, judgment is always wrong. How can you judge someone for living out their truth? How can you judge someone for doing what's right for them? How can you judge someone for doing what makes them happy? Therefore, in our culture today, judging is the worst offense. So you can see how these ideas that God is perfectly right and and how he determines what's right and wrong and holds people accountable for right and wrong and then punishes those people for doing right or wrong. You can see how ridiculous that sounds to our modern culture today. It's offensive. Some might even say it's wrong. Did you catch that? It's wrong to call other people wrong. (laughs) Therein lies the irony and hypocrisy of our day. Saying it's wrong to judge others is actually a judgment of others. Saying that you can't force your morality or your truth on me is actually forcing your truth on someone. See, our culture denies right and wrong, yet we have this strong drive for justice. We see it when someone innocent is killed. We see it when people march or protest an unjust law. Here's what this tells us. Romans is true. We all do have a knowledge of God. We all do have God's law written on our hearts. We all do know right or wrong. We all do want justice and fairness. Think about it. We do want a God that's fair and just. What would we say about a judge who lets a murderer go free? We would want that judge removed, rightly so. What would we say about a judge who lets his friends off the hook but sends everyone else to jail? We would want that judge removed. We have this strong inner sense of right and wrong and fairness and justice because we're made in the image of the God of justice. That is a good thing. It means that God is going to deal with evil. We want God to be just and fair. We just don't want God to be just and fair towards us. We like to think of God dealing with those bad people out there, but we forget that we are the bad people. And that's Paul's point. If there's a standard of right and wrong, all of us have done wrong. If God is the judge, then all of us will stand before him. And if God is fair and just, then all of us are in serious trouble. So the Bible says what you and I deserve for our sin is to spend eternity in hell. But here's where that fairness question kicks in again. Uh, Some Christians struggle today with the concept of hell. Some have tried to explain it away or kind of sugarcoat it, like I was just being separated from God or living in darkness or just ceasing to exist. Some have even said that hell is just a symbolic exaggeration. It's not actually a real place, right? That's simply not what the Bible teaches. The Bible makes clear that hell is a place of never-ending conscious torment by fire. Real people are there, and they are really burning right now. And you and I, based on our record, deserve the exact same thing. So again, we ask, how is that fair? Is it fair for a loving God to send people he created to hell? 
Is it fair that a temporary sin deserves an eternal punishment? Does the punishment of hell really fit the crime of our sin? I want you to know it's not uncommon to wrestle with these questions. There may be no more difficult topic in the Bible than that of hell. This is hard. It should bother us. It should disturb us. But the reason in our flesh that we think about these questions and we doubt and we question God's goodness is because we have too small a view of God. Hell and eternal punishment tell us that God is infinitely holy and infinitely worthy. Like we understand different crimes receive different punishments. We expect that a murderer will receive a stiffer sentence than a thief. A greater offense requires a greater punishment. So what does the punishment of hell tell us about the offense of sin? It tells us that sin is more than a mistake or a bad habit. It tells us that sin is the single most offensive and horrific thing we could ever do. To sin against another person, that's bad. But to sin against a God who is holy, 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 who is worthy of all glory is a whole nother thing entirely. To sin against an eternal and infinite God requires an eternal and infinite judgment. This is why hell exists. This is why it would be completely fair for God to rip the roof off this church right now and throw each of us there for eternity. So why doesn't he do that? Because God is faithful and fair. Hang on a second. You just said that God being faithful and fair means that we're going to be judged. Well, don't miss this. Here's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that God is not only faithful and fair in his judgment, but he's also faithful and fair in his love. God's judgment and love, they're not in competition. They're not against each other. They work together. See, God's faithfulness means that he does love the whole world, that he will continue to love us even after we sin against him. So God was faithful to send his own son Jesus to die in our place to take our sin. And God was faithful to raise him from the dead. And God is faithful today to save anyone who calls on him, turning from their sin and trusting in Christ. And even though we may continue to struggle and fall short, God is faithful to hold on to us and to never let us go. And God is faithful to bring us to heaven one day, even though we deserve hell. God is also fair in his love. God was fair to punish sin and deal with evil, but instead of giving us the punishment, he put it on his son. God was fair in that he didn't leave Jesus in the grave, but he raised him up for our justification that we might have eternal life. And God is fair to save all those who call on him, no matter who they are, what they've done, or where they come from. Yes, God's judgment, man, this is difficult. And yeah, like we we got some questions about all this. But all this talk about sin and judgment and hell should not cause us to theorize or try and justify ourselves or argue and debate or be confused. It should cause us to run to Jesus. That's it. Just like we learned in Sunday school growing up, Jesus is always the right answer. (laughs) He's the answer to our problem with sin. He's the answer to our need for salvation. He's the answer to He's the only way we can be made right with God. It's Jesus. He's it. Will you trust him today? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.